I was looking at a, it was a Q&A or a speech that Jeff had given and someone asked him what Amazon's culture is about. You know, I got that question a lot too. And so he answered, you know, our culture is really, if you want to summarize it, it's four things. It's customer obsession over competitor obsession. It's willingness to think long-term, longer than most of peers typically think. Uh, eagerness to invent, which goes hand in hand with failure. And also taking professional pride in operational excellence in what you do. I think that is a good succinct summary of what is Amazon is about. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Jeff Bezos, life is too short to hang out with people who aren't resourceful. Our guest today, Colin Breyer, knows Jeff Bezos quite well. He worked on Amazon's senior leadership team for 12 years, starting in 1998, including serving as Bezos' chief of staff for two years. Colin is co-founder of Working Backwards LLC, an executive coaching firm, and the co-author of the new book, Working Backwards, Insights, Stories, and Secrets from Inside Amazon, which will be published by the time you hear this. Colin, welcome. It's great to have you on the Elevate podcast. Oh, uh, thanks. Great for having me here, too. So I'm, I'm super interested to dig into your book and your time in Amazon, but I always like to start with, uh, with a little earlier than that. So what roles did you hold early in your career and what led you to working at Amazon in the first place? Sure. Um, so out of college, I left in the college after 1990 is when I had got my master's and I started working at what was then a, a relatively small software company called Oracle as a, a database consultant. So helping companies build bespoke uh, database applications. And I did that for about five years. And uh, the region was up in the Pacific Northwest. And I made it a point to uh, take whatever was the most exciting project uh, versus where did I want to be located. It was pretty mobile at that time. So I was off the beaten path for a lot of these projects that would last anywhere from two to six months. But um, I actually learned quite a bit in you know, working with a bunch of different companies in different industries. And the internet was really starting to take off. People were still trying to figure out what it was back in 94, 95 and 96. And then I uh, founded a, a company uh, with two other uh, co-founders to try to help companies figure out how to unlock their uh, corporate data and expose the data and processes on, on the web and worked with uh, a bunch of different companies, uh, you know, Microsoft, Boeing up here in the Northwest, and then another small company called Amazon at the time. And so eventually joined Amazon in 1998. So that's how I ended up at Amazon. And at that point, it was uh, just books and just in the in the US. And so, you know, from early on in my career, I always would be willing to take a little risk if the opportunity to learn was was there and, uh, you know, kind of pivot and, and move around. And so I spent uh, 12 years, a little over 12 years at, at Amazon in a number of different roles. It was growing so fast that effectively every 12 to 18 months, it was a different company, um, given the, the growth from just books and just in the US to uh, what it is today. So when you got there, you said it was just books. How, just to give us order of magnitude, how many people was it? Where was everyone in one office at the time? Yeah, so um, there were roughly 
600 people um, in the total company, including the customer service centers, and, and there were two fulfillment centers at the time. The corporate area was 100 people, and uh, we were all in one building, a really uh, four-story small building called the Columbia Center down by uh, Seattle's Pike Place Market, which is a, a tourist area. And uh, we had you know multiple desks in every office. We had desks in the hallways. And uh, there were a few conference rooms. So when we got that, I was started out in the technology group and we could have, there was a conference room that was big enough where we could have the whole technology team. It'd be cozy, but we'd be sitting in, in a conference room. So that's um, roughly how, what Amazon was like back then when they started. And so what did you know about Amazon or Bezos or his sort of leadership style before you joined? Well, um, you know, I was... Uh, a customer of of Amazon, and so um, you know, working with a, a couple of different, you know, lots of different companies to try to figure out how they would use the internet and, and the web to their uh, advantage, both in terms of business to business or B two C. You're just looking at Amazon. You you could go to the homepage right away, and you would realize, okay, they get it. And so they were even the gold standard of you know customer focus, but also how to use the the web effectively to accomplish your business goals. Uh, you know, I, I didn't actually meet Jeff until as my first day uh, that I started in March of '98 was the first time I met him. And uh, you know, he came in. There was a handful of people, maybe ten people, uh, who were starting around then too. And he um, said, first, um, Amazon is wants to build. Earth's most customer-centric company, and then uh, become the place where people can find, discover, and buy what they want to buy online. And the first part of that statement is still holds true today. And uh, the second one I thought was a, a big, um, ambitious vision, but it is actually a little too small compared to what Amazon is doing today, you know, given all of their other areas in terms of devices, AWS, and things like that. So from the very beginning, Jeff was customer focused and uh, thinking big is another Amazon leadership principle. And yeah, he's, he drove the, the rest of the company to think that way too. So one of the things I, I've read about Amazon different is sort of the meeting strategy, you know, both the, the sort of no presentations and the chair. And can you talk a little bit about like, what was your first meeting and was it really different? And, and what did, it seems like Amazon's figured out how to do meetings better. Yeah, so the the no PowerPoint presentations, uh, it, it actually didn't start until uh, about 2004. Okay. And Amazon went through a lot of growing pains over the years. And it, you know, it, it had to both solve lots of technology problems and organizational problems just to keep up with the, the growth, like, you know, lots of other uh, companies at that time. But I think Amazon was always willing to take a chance and try something. And if it didn't work, you just try something else. And so it was uh, around 2004. This is at the time I was with uh, Jeff at working as his chief of staff. There would be a, a weekly um, S team. S team is Jeff's direct reports. It's the senior leaders in the company. So there would be a four hour meeting um, every Tuesday. I think it was from 10 till two. Usually would run over a bit too, but uh, different groups would come in and present on a wide variety of issues. Some were decision making uh, topics, some were updating or you know business reviews. But uh, they 
were challenging in, in that we didn't always get to accomplish what we wanted to by the end of the meeting. And uh, Jeff and I had been reading some essays by Edward Tufte, who is a, a professor emeritus now at Yale about um, using narratives and uh, as, you know, words and sentences and paragraphs are better ways to convey complex uh, information. And we had been, you know, trying other different methods too. And so I think it was June in 2004, we just kind of ripped the bandaid off and said, okay, at these ST meetings, there's no more uh, slides or, or PowerPoint. Everyone's going to come in and write, you know, what became a six page narrative. Now, most meetings where you at Amazon, where you are reviewing something, it is pretty strange compared to other companies because there's a chit chat at the beginning, but once the meeting starts, if it's an hour meeting, it's typically about 20 minutes of silence where people are just reading what was presented either online and, you know, commenting that and some, you know, collaborative method or just reading, you know, the physical paper and, and, and jotting down their notes. Right. So everyone starts reading the memo and then they get into dialogue. And what, what were the biggest surprises you saw from that in terms of did it level the playing field insights? Like, did it affect extroverts or introverts differently? I can see I can one group would be helped and the other group would be hurt. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think a couple of things. One is that it really elevated the idea is the most important thing versus yeah. the presenter. And, yeah. you know, if you are going to do a big presentation, you spend, you know, a good chunk of your time developing your idea, but then um, you spent a whole bunch of time on the presentation and, you know, ranging from clip art, fancy graphics to jokes to start off the meeting, whatever that happens to be. And at the end of the day, customers don't really care how the meeting went, but they do care that a great idea was nurtured and developed and turned into something meaningful in the customers' lives. So that is um, one thing. Second is it removes a lot of biases too. And uh, you can have, for instance, you could have a a great presenter presenting a so-so or even a bad idea and you make the wrong business decision. Or you could have the reverse where someone who's got this great idea, but it's just a muddled, complicated mess of slides and they're not um, the best presenter. And that bias creeps in and it makes you think, well, maybe we shouldn't do this idea. Right. So it, it removes bias was, was another thing. But it did take us a while to get our stride into how to write these narratives, how long they should be, how to comment on them, and how often you should iterate through these. So the goal was really an idea of meritocracy, it sounds like. Yeah, idea and and also businesses are they're fairly complex. So slides tend to reduce the the argument to a sequential flow with bullet points. And a lot of the business situations we were looking at didn't really work that way. The ideas were interconnected. There were lots of dependencies. There were complicated arguments and, and pros and cons. Narratives actually forced uh, the writer to come up with all of that and present an argument versus, uh, you know, kind of winging a, a presentation. So I'm curious for a company that focuses on big ideas, right? Amazon's had some huge wins, right? And it's also had some some strikeouts, and that's that's expected. I mean, pretty high batting average by all things. How do you know? Like, how did the company or or Bezos? Or I think this is everyone's problem around 
how do you know when to sort of give up on a big idea? It sounds great. Everyone's on board. But what's the metric, particularly, I guess, in a customer-centric organization to know when, like, look, the Amazon cell phone is just a no-go, but the Amazon Fire is a go? Because inherently, if it's a really big visionary idea, it's not going to get traction overnight. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And so when uh, Jeff Bezos, he would uh, he'd talk often about you can be stubborn on the vision and flexible on the details. And so one example would be Amazon moving into digital uh, delivery of goods. So before Amazon had the Kindle or or, uh, any other significant digital services, 75% of their revenue was based on physical delivery of physical media. So books, DVDs, and uh, CDs at, at the time. That was all, uh, you know, a good chunk of that was going to go away. You could argue, what is it two years out, five years out, seven years out, but you knew that um, digital delivery of goods was coming. And so that would be one where if your first idea is not the right idea or you didn't quite get it right, you stick at it because if you want to be in the delivery of media goods, physical or digital, you have to figure out how to make it work. So I don't know if you remember, there was something called an Unbox, which was a video delivery service that uh, didn't really resonate with customers. There are a lot of issues, but Amazon didn't decide to pull out of digital video. It said, okay, let's come up with another idea. And, you know, eventually Prime Video and Amazon Studios, that took, you know, seven years to, you know, to kind of get to that point, roughly. Um, something like the the Fire Phone, it's it's a worthy experiment, but if it didn't work, you know, if Amazon didn't have its own branded phone, is that uh, how would that change their relationship with customers? Not so much. So you, you kind of have to to try that. So another way to look at it is if it's something that's part of your long term strategy and you have to make it work, you've got to be stubborn and stick with it. But you also do want to do some experiments and experiments. By definition, you don't know if they're going to work. So when they fail, you look to say, have we learned all we can? And have we made our best efforts? And maybe there is nothing here in this idea that there are no value that we can add for customers, or it's, we got to figure this out and we're going to try version two or version three. So it's interesting. It occurs to me, and I've never noticed this before until you described it, but it's very different than Google's approach, right? It sounds like Amazon had a core belief around where the market was going and what customers would need, and there could be different ways to get there. Uh, so the 10x ideas, though, were about we have to figure out something in this segment versus I don't think Google's 10x ideas are very related to their core business. It's about trying something you know, totally different. It, there was something in what you said where it was like, it really was like we determined the strategy we had to be in digital. So we would try some stuff in digital and it wouldn't all work. I think that's different of saying, oh, here's Google Glasses, right? And we have no idea how it correlates to our main search business or email or otherwise. Is that accurate? Well, um, so, you know, I can't really speak to some of these Google moonshots uh, approaches, but how Amazon um, really views these ideas, you know, some of them are core to the business and some are actually new businesses. So AWS is a great example of Amazon wasn't in, well, cloud computing didn't even exist back then. But the how Amazon views it is the the first approach is to start from the customer experience and then work backwards from that. And, you know, so 
It's really identify a customer need or problem that you're trying to solve. Do you have all the information that you need to, to figure out is this big enough to be worthy, worth doing? And then also, what are the skills necessary to, to do it, to be successful? A lot of companies take a skills forward approach, which by that they look at, okay, what are our competencies? What, what are we good at? And how do we apply that to a market uh, that we want to move into? Um, Amazon really doesn't use that skills forward approach. It identifies the customer needs. And then if you don't have those skills, but you think it's worth doing, then you, you need to figure out how to acquire those skills, either with partnering by someone or hiring and building you know, something up from scratch. You know, Amazon was not a device maker and, and it was um, a lot of people thought it was a silly idea for Amazon to start manufacturing hardware. At the time they were looking into digital, but the reason Amazon moved into that is because they decided that in order to differentiate and innovate for customers and provide the experience, you needed control of that area and you needed to figure out how to build hardware. And you know that decision was made when the digital group was you know just a handful of people. Steve Kessel and uh, my co-author Bill Carr was the number two employee, and Steve was the first digital employee. And at that point, it's like, okay, we're now in the hardware business. We don't know how to do it yet, but we we have to go figure that out and how to go do it. So it's more a customer centric moving forward approach. Yeah, it's where where the puck is going, not where the puck is right now. Yeah. Is the story true about there being a chair in every meeting still? Um, <laughs> so I, I, I don't, uh, I never really saw someone okay. put an empty chair and say, remember the customer. Um, not to say it didn't happen, but, uh, but you also don't need it um, because the customer obsession is woven into so many of the basic Amazon processes and the way that they do business that the chair, the empty chair isn't really it wouldn't really be all, all that. It wouldn't make any difference. Let me put it that way. So that one's taken a little bit of a life of its own. Yeah, I can say I've never saw a leader say, here's an empty chair. Well, that's pretty <laughs> credible. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com elevate. Fast forward to the end of 2024 and think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. 
Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. It's designed by real people for real conversations. I've tried Babbel. It's fun, it's interactive, and in just a few minutes a day, I could see that it was making a difference and helping my comprehension and retention. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com elevate. Get 55% off at babbel.com elevate, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash elevate. Rules and restrictions may apply. So I mean, everyone's, we've all read a lot, heard a lot about Bezos. I'm curious, like what, what's something about his leadership style you think would be surprising to, to our listeners for those who don't know him well? It is a little challenging to convey how deeply he um, cares and ensures that the customer experience is first and you know foremost of everyone's mind from every little detail to, you know, should we move into the, this big this big area, it's, it is really all about customer obsession, not customer focus or um, pay attention to your customers. It really is customer obsession. And uh, he has a, an inventive spirit that quite honestly is contagious. And uh, he'll say some ideas, you know, he has more ideas. I mean, if you were to implement every one of his ideas, yeah. it would crush the company, even at Amazon's current size. But his ideas also have, um, they look at the problem in a different way. And another one of Amazon's leadership principles is really invent and simplify. So he's got a good way to look at what is the essence of a problem and how can you come up with a, a simple and innovative solution. So those would be a couple of things that I would, uh, you know, you can read about it, but once you you see it in, in action, it's, um, it's quite impressive. And he loves, um, he loves what he does. He's not, you know, I worked with him closely for quite a long time. I never got the impression that he was doing it for his legacy or doing it to get PR or more people to write about him or, or Amazon. He genuinely is um, fully invested in, and loves what he's doing in building Amazon. All right, we'll be right back uh, in a few minutes after this break with Colin. I wanna take a moment to let you know about my new on-demand course for discovering and developing core values. On this podcast, I've chatted with many guests about the importance of incorporating core values in your life and career. High achievers would tell you it's the key to many of their accomplishments. I get asked a lot by readers of Friday Forward and Elevate about the best way to identify core values, and I haven't had an easy answer to date. This course is that way. The course walks you through a tested method to help you brainstorm, refine, and test a list of personal core values. The course can be completed in about an hour, but it will prompt plenty of reflection and work in the days, weeks, and months that follow. Start discovering the principles that matter most to you and aligning your life around them. Get the course at corevaluescourse.com. That's corevaluescourse.com or from the course tab at robertglazer.com. Also, if you'd like to do this exercise with your team, reach out to us at course at robertglazer.com and we can offer you a team discount. I hope you will check it out. And now back to the episode. All right, welcome back. So I know we were talking before uh, the break about sort of leadership. Is there a story you can remember? Like what's your quintessential meeting or story, you know, from your Amazon timeframe that just sort of encapsulates your your experience there? Yeah, so um, there, there's one thing that uh, a program Amazon has, it's called customer connection. And uh, it's where you, 
every, um, I think now it's every two years, you need to be a customer service rep for a couple of days. Hmm. And then there was a similar program for working in, in the warehouse. Before, you know, when I talked about being at the Columbia building, the Amazon warehouse was just a short bus ride down. So we'd work during the day and an email would come out, hey, we have a lot of orders. Can you guys come down and help, you know, pack books uh, later on this evening? So we would do that. But Amazon formalized the customer connection and also a fulfillment center program. And when I was working with Jeff, you know, you get an email saying, okay, your time's up to, you you now have to get recertified. And uh, so Jeff and I, we, uh, there's a customer service center in Tacoma, which is about an hour drive south of Seattle. So we drove down there for a couple of days. And the first part was you get trained and then you observe customer uh, service reps interact with uh, both over email and phone calls. And then the last part is you actually answer emails and, and phone calls. And, you know, this is the CEO of a, <laughs> Amazon was a multi-billion dollar company at that yeah. time, spending two days to be a customer service rep. That's unusual from what I've seen at, at other companies. But um, where something really powerful came out of that is we were listening to a call and the customer service rep uh, took the call and you know we had our headsets on and, and the, the customer said, hey, I have some damaged lawn and furniture that was uh, delivered and I just want to know what to do about it. And the CS rep said, well, can you tell me which uh, item you were talking about? Because uh, she had multiple items on the order. And she hadn't looked at the order yet, but she said, then she put it on, on mute and turned to Jeff and I and said, I bet you it's this one. And she pulled this uh, item up on the Amazon site. And sure enough, the customer came back and said, well, here's the, the lawn furniture I have. So we, uh, the CS rep took care of the customer and, and the problem. And after the call, Jeff said, how did you know that? Because you know Amazon has millions of items for sale on the site. And she said, oh, you know, it's been happening uh, quite often uh, recently, and it's just the, the packaging on this product isn't the best, and some, and it gets uh, this product in particular gets damaged a lot in delivery. And so um, that afternoon, Jeff and I we were talking, Jeff said, we need an Andon cord, which is a process borrowed from Toyota in the Toyota uh, manufacturing floor. There's actually a cord where if someone observed a quality problem, they could pull the cord and the assembly line would stop and there'd yeah. be a team that would uh, you know, analyze that. And so um, from that customer service session, that's how Amazon developed the Andon cord. It's a virtual one, but CS reps, can they would call it the big red button. They can press that. And what that means is that you can't buy that. The item will still be on Amazon, but customers can't buy it. The category managers get notified right away saying, hey, a, we've taken your product off for sale. Go fix this problem. Yeah, it must have driven him crazy that she knew what the problem was. <laughs> and yeah, that was the other thing. It's you know, yeah, I don't know. Probably all of us have experienced talking to a customer service rep at a company, and you know that they know what the problem is, but they don't have the tools to actually fix the problem for you. Yeah. It's frustrating for the CS rep, and it's frustrating for the customer. And you know, we wanted to avoid that to you know empower the people closest to the customer, and then also make sure it got fixed pretty quickly. So one of the things that you talk about in your book uh, is, you know, clearly Amazon did not get to where it is without assembling an incredible uh, team and, uh, you know, talent-wise and figuring out how to do that at scale. So hiring is clearly part of the strategy. And there's, in the book, you talk about the bar raiser strategy. Can you sort of explain what that is and how that applies to hiring top talent? 
Sure. Um, so it, it was one of, I would say, Amazon's earliest formal processes, that, and it was started as a result. We were growing so fast that you had new hires, hiring new hires, hiring new hires. And yeah. so, you know, we, we essentially lost control over what type of people you bring on board. And that's a, a dangerous position for a growing company to be in because at, your culture is going to set re- relatively quickly. And if you're not deliberate about who you who you are hiring and, and what type of people you're looking for, you're going to get a different culture than the one that you want, most likely. Yeah. And so Amazon's bar raiser process was... Um, a reaction to that. And it's a deliberate hiring process where there's a technique called behavioral interviewing, which is um, your past behavior and actions is a good predictor of what's moving forward. So, you know, questions like, tell me about your, your resume doesn't really add information about what they've done in the past and what they can do moving forward. Right. So it was a deliberate hiring process where we would vet candidates on, according to leadership principles. And then, you know, also if they had some domain expertise that we'd have to, to vet. But the, the bar raiser, it's the name of the process, but there's also uh, an actual bar raiser role on the interview loop. Hmm. You know, you have about five to seven people interviewing. And that bar raiser has, um, they're not part of the, the team that's hiring. So they don't really have a bias to say, we really need people to solve this problem. And they have veto power. Hi, everyone. If you're not a subscriber to Harvard Business Review, you're missing out on a wealth of leadership content. Widely acknowledged as the leader in business leadership information, Harvard Business Review provides information, tools, and practical advice on leadership, management, and strategy through the hbr.org website, their print publication, and their incredible podcasts. Premium subscribers can also access a selection of Harvard Business School real-world case studies, and scenarios that provide business leaders with the learnings from how business leaders manage their business, their team, and themselves. When I need a source or data that I can trust for one of my articles, HBR is my go-to. Just this week, I referenced one of their articles about the efficacy of required diversity training, which had the most data behind it by far. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free, after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at just $10 a month. Go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. With everyone fighting for attention these days, how can you get your business to stand out and connect with customers? It's easy, get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media postings, and even event management. You'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track your growth. Constant Contact's writing assistance tools and automation features help you say the right thing at the right time, every time. Plus, you can send with confidence, knowing that your emails are actually reaching your customers, thanks to their best-in-class 97% deliverability rate. Constant Contact was actually the first email marketing platform I ever used almost 20 years ago, and it's a testament to the product's quality that it's still the standard for email marketing today. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. 
Just go to constantcontact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. So they have full stop veto power over the over the whole thing. Yes. So that was controversial when it started, but it's actually not used that much. The veto isn't because the bar raiser is job is also to train the interviewers and to show where where the actual um, expectations in the bar is for interviewing and they're training people how to get that. Yeah. And also to walk the hiring manager through if especially if it's a new uh, hiring manager, you actually don't benefit if you hire someone who we don't think is going to be a good fit. And it's a simple process to understand and to implement. And it also scales really well. And the last thing is it has a feedback loop. So Amazon puts a lot of time into hiring. You know, if you have a, let's say 45 minute interview, you've got to spend your time prepping because you have a very deliberate set of questions. You need to go into the interview and you, you need to come out with some information and you have to vote. You have to place your vote on the candidate um, before you can talk to anyone else about it. So, you know, you don't want to be biased by someone saying, hey, this person's great. What did you think of them? You know, yeah. you already <laughs> have a predisposition there. So you have to defend your your reasoning in writing. You have to place your vote before you see anyone else's vote. And then there's a, a feedback hiring debrief meeting afterwards. And that's another learning experience where, you know, sometimes I, I learn something new. I would say every debrief meeting where Either I've learned some a new technique to talk to candidates or new uh, questions that work well, or have taught people, um, here's how you can get this information out of people. So, you know, it's a simple process with the feedback loop, and it removes a lot of the bias in the hiring process, urgency bias being one of the main ones. Yeah, you don't let the people who need the role get the role, and I'm sure there are a lot of people who needed help. Tell me, where so where did the debrief happen? Was the debrief if something went right or something went wrong, or it happened automatically when it was over? A debrief happens with every okay. interview. So you interview the candidate, and then everyone gets together, and it works like one of those Amazon meetings I talked about where the first 10, 15, or 20 minutes are silent, where everyone's reading the written feedback. After every round, or this is for the final round? Well, there's typically one or two phone screens, and then there's one interview round with about five to seven interviews, Got it. That, which is a day that they typically come in or if they're virtual. So it's all that's all the same day. Yeah. Yeah. And then after that, you know, a day or two later, you schedule the debrief and you go through and, and read that. So everything goes through that. And, you know, it also stops, you know, Amazon has uh, insist on highest standards. You can't go into that meeting and submit a two-line feedback. Great person, I think we should hire, yeah. because you'll get called out, and and you know you've kind of wasted an interview slot, and you've you've wasted the candidate's time too. And so, um, if you are on a hiring uh, committee and loop, you have to sign up for a, you know a fair bit of work because it's one of the most important things that the company can do. Yeah, and and as I listen to you say, it's like, wow, this is a lot of time. This is difficult, but hiring the wrong person <laughs> is much more painful, right? Than doing all this work up front. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it actually, this upfront work saves time and headache for later on. So I, I know there were also in the book, you talked about the four key principles of the company culture at Amazon. Can you talk about those and sort of how the leadership teaches and reinforces those principles? Yeah. So, um, there was, I was looking at a, it was a Q&A or a speech that Jeff had given and someone asked him what Amazon's culture is about. You know, I got that question a lot too. And so he answered, you know, our culture is really, if you want to summarize it, it's four things. It's customer obsession over competitor obsession. 
its willingness to think long-term, longer than most of peers typically think, uh, eagerness to invent, which goes hand in hand with failure, and also taking professional pride and operational excellence in what you do. I think that is a good succinct summary of what is Amazon is about. And um, the book, Working Backwards, goes into detail on, well, how does Amazon do that? So, you know, for instance, some of the, and the, these um, principles are they're actually more powerful when they work in tandem. So, you know, customer obsession and operational excellence. A, a good example, I don't know if you've ever streamed an Amazon movie and it, you've had some either hiccups and bandwidth. And um, if you do, you likely will get an email later saying, hey, we're sorry that you your viewing experience did not meet our standards. We've mm-hmm. refunded your your rental or your, you know, if you bought the movie and um, you won't be charged for it. I uh, hope you enjoyed the movie. And so that in itself is, you know, how you measure things and, you know, can you actually measure what is the customer viewing experience for everyone who watches every single uh, video online? Yeah. That's no trivial task, but, you know, how it ties into operational excellence is that both the technology team and you know, if they're in the business team, if they're not the same, if they're different, they definitely are notified and they look at that and they get dinged in their PL. And, you know, if, if Amazon's not really in the business of buying content from content creators yeah. and giving it away for free. And so they're held to, okay, how, you know, what, what happened with this viewing experience? How can you fix this defect so it doesn't move downstream and happen again? What gets measured gets managed. Yes. So that, that's, um, I would say, one example of how you tie those different um, cultural pillars uh, together. But really, um, you know, from the ground up, like I talked about, the, the bar raiser process has some really um, high uh, expectations on, on the interviewers to, to perform. And, um, you know, how, how you measure, you know, measure Amazon metrics. Amazon focuses a lot more on input metrics, which are the set of things that if you do right, it will yield your desired um, business output metrics. Right. And those input metrics are heavily weighted to measuring what was the customer experience this last period is better than it was the prior period and is it, is it trending in the right direction. So it's interesting, like in that case, right? And this is, I could see how this differentiates from company instead of like, hey, what was our average bandwidth delivered per show? It's like, what, how many customers did we have to refund for poor experience watching their shows, right? It, it, is, a, it is a customer metric, not a, just a utilitarian metric. Yes. And, um, you know, the, the, how much bandwidth did you use is important, but what's much more important yeah. is your, you know, what did the customer, did they watch the movie? Were there glitches? Because if you do want to grow it and make it a big business, you actually have to have, a, you know, a customer experience that's worthy of you know, people using and shouting about. And you can't do that unless you, um, one, unless you can measure it, but then two, unless you try to, you know, delight customers and exceed their expectations. All right, Colin, uh, last question for you. What's a mistake that you've made, uh, or maybe how we can say at Amazon or otherwise, that it could be singular or repeated that you've learned the most from? Yeah, um, so I, well, I made a lot of mistakes. So, <laughs> But, um, I, you know, back in, uh, in Amazon, this is before I was working with Jeff, I was managing the Amazon affiliate business. And um, it was relatively new at the time. Amazon was one of the the pioneers in that. 
And um, I had stepped up into that role and you can think of it in one way as it, it generates a bunch of traffic from the internet through hundreds of thousands of affiliate sites coming to Amazon and then you know generating uh, sales. And once I, when I first started that role, I'd get emails and my phone would ring from category managers who are in charge of electronics. Books. Yeah. Hey, can you run a promotion for this month? I'm, I'm trying to hit my goal. Um, can you basically turn this affiliate fire hose of traffic to my category? Yeah. <laughs> and you do that and then you get, you know, Oh, thanks. Colin, your team is great. you you saved the day. And it, and it, it felt good, and I and I actually thought I was doing the the right thing. And it was also, you know, we we had a bunch of metrics on how efficient uh, we were at converting traffic to sales. And but I actually forgot about who our customer was for a while. And um, you know, our customer, my customer in this case, wasn't the category managers; it was the affiliate sites. They were kind enough to devote generous pixels from their website in return for something. And I wasn't really focused on that. And yeah. um, and as the competition started to, to spring up in different affiliate models, and also Google had uh, AdWords and AdSense, that was just starting then too, you, you slowly notice that um, erosion. And it's not you wake up one day and you think, okay, I've got to go switch. Customers leave one at a time. And uh, I realized that if I kept this up, I'd get high fives from the category managers, but eventually the business was not going to grow and it would be smaller. And I would be both doing a disservice to the affiliates as well as the category managers because there wouldn't be as much traffic to funnel around. So we actually shifted quite a bit and um, focused on how can we build better experiences for people who want to incorporate Amazon data and um, participate in, in a traffic and, and revenue sharing. Like, so I, I forgot the customer um, and I will never make that mistake again. You know, you can, uh, don't pay attention to what pundits or press uh, say about you. If you know what you're doing and focus on the customer, that will likely make you uh, successful in whatever you're doing. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help define the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Any candidate who's looking for a job is going to be on LinkedIn. And LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals, and many like myself use it every day, which also makes it the best place to hire. LinkedIn gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. That's why 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. Post your job for free today at linkedin.com practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, that's an interesting story. I think a lot of us in, in multiple stakeholder scenarios forget about who the customer is. I had actually had a very similar story in the affiliate world years ago when I was dealing with a discount site. And my our client was pretty upset that they were using some made up and fake offers or taking expired offers that other people had they weren't supposed to have. And they were paying them 
several hundred thousand dollars in in Q4. And I was talking to one of the account managers, um, you know, from that partner, and they said, "Yeah, well, our our customers, which they meant where they're free users on the site, like seeing all these offers, <laughs> you know, even if they're not real or otherwise." I was it's saying, "Well, I, I, the customer that pays you three hundred thousand dollars is is not happy with this, so <laughs> you may want to consider what's more important: the the free user who logged on or the person who's who's paying for this." And yeah, it occurred to me at that time they had been using the wrong definition of customer. Yeah, that's an interesting story. And and one that I'm sure has occurred many areas. Uh, many of times. Yeah, particularly when you have multiple stakeholders, I think it gets harder. So, uh, well, Colin, thanks for uh, sharing your story and your insights uh, with us. It's it's fascinating hearing about uh, your experience in the world of Amazon. And, and I'm sure a lot of people will be interested to dive into the new book. Great. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed our talk. All right, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Colin and his work in his new book, Working Backwards, on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode with Colin, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show. If you're listening to Apple Podcasts, all you have to do is select the library icon, click on Elevate, scroll down to the bottom, and you can leave a rating or review. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. Hello, Elevate Podcast listeners. I wanted to let you know about my friend Darius and his amazing show, The Greatness Machine. The Greatness Machine is one of the top-ranked educational and business podcasts in the country, recently ranking top five in the entrepreneurial category on iTunes. Here's why I love Darius and The Greatness Machine. It really comes down to a few things. The Greatness Machine has amazing guests from the likes of sports icon Gabby Reese, worldwide news sensation Amanda Knox, FBI hostage negotiator Chris Voss, and Tiny Habits expert and author BJ Fogg, to NHL Hall of Famer Chris Pronger, and hundreds more. Darius keeps it real. I always learn something new, and I have a few laughs. And he always also asks great questions, and is a really entertaining and engaging host. The Greatness Machine is where you get to be a fly on the wall and listen to Darius and his amazing group of guests talk about how they got to where they are today and hear stories of people who have lived their passions to create greatness in the world and doing so despite the odds. So if you want to be entertained while learning from some of the greatest and most accomplished people in the world, this is definitely a show for you to check out. Subscribe to The Greatness Machine today on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, 
and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam, on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.